The sermon text today will be John 19, verses 23 through 27. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. At 9 a.m., the crucifixion began. And at 3 p.m., he breathed his last. We come here today to remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. My goal in this sermon is to walk through three points from this text to see Jesus' suffering to see Jesus' submission, and to see Jesus, his sympathy. In verse 23, it says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus. When we are to look at Jesus' sufferings on this day, I think it would, it would serve us well to know that there are a number of events that have occurred leading up to this verse in 23 when it says he was crucified. And as a way of reminder on this day, let us go back and think about the events that led up to verse 23 that says, when he was crucified. So we know just the night before, Jesus was sharing in his last supper with the disciples. He watched Judas leave the table and go to betray him, to turn him in for 30 pieces of silver. They went to the garden, and he watched his disciples fall asleep while he prayed and asked God to take away the cup of wrath from him. And then he said, your will be done, Father. Sweating drops of blood under intense agony in the garden of Gethsemane while his disciples were sleeping. And then shortly after he finishes praying, he goes and wakes up the disciples, and he's met by a band of soldiers that the Pharisees had gathered, coming to him with swords and clubs, ready to arrest him. And he leaves with them, and he gets brought into the presence of the religious leaders, the elders and the scribes. And in his presence, they begin to question him. 
They begin to want to know if it's true that he claims to be the Son of God. And it says that Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest, he tore his robes and he said, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Jesus is standing before the ones that he created. And yet they have rounded up witnesses to give false testimony. They have done everything they can to convict him. And then he's punched and sped upon. The Pharisees want him dead, and they know they don't have the power to do it, so they have to go to Pilate, who was the Roman governor. They were under the authority of Rome, and they didn't have the power to issue a death sentence. So they bring Jesus to Pilate. And Pilate, after questioning for a little bit, finds no apparent reason to condemn him and learns that he's actually under Herod's jurisdiction as a Galilean. And so it's this idea of almost, if you could think of our federal government and the state government. So he's sent back from Pilate over to Herod, who just happened to be in God's providence in Jerusalem. And so it says this, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he had learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. But Jesus made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Jesus is standing before Herod and asked to perform signs to prove his claims. It's as if he was a circus animal asked to perform on the spot. Yet, Herod's asking to see signs, and we know that All throughout the gospel narratives, Jesus has been performing miracle after miracle that validates his teaching and validates his claim that he is the Son of God. He's turned water into wine. He's calmed the storms of the sea. He's given sight to the blind, the paralyzed. He's given legs to, and they're able to get up and walk. The lame are able to speak. Those who are dead, even after three days, he can bring back to life with Lazarus. They've heard all of these things. And he stands before them being mocked and accused. And then to keep the joke going, Herod has him dressed in splendid clothing, which most likely is a reference to his idea of claiming to be king and the son of God. And so they dress him up as if he's royalty 
and send him back to Pilate. And Pilate must have thought it was a pretty good joke because after that they became friends, united by their mockery of Christ. Once Jesus returns back to Pilate, increasingly pressures put on Pilate to put him to death. And Pilate tries to appease the crowds and decides to have Jesus punished with a severe punishment that maybe this would appease them. And so he has Jesus sent to the soldiers where he will be flogged. And the flogging would occur where there is a whip And attached to this whip would have been metal pieces of various sorts, animal bones, iron, sharp pieces, that when they would be whipped into him, it would penetrate the flesh. And then when pulled out, would rip the flesh over and over again, lacerating him. And it wouldn't just be Jesus and somebody, um, one other person watching this event, but it was a whole battalion, we learned, 600 men watching Jesus whipped. We don't know how many times. Mark writes, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. After Jesus experiences this flogging, it's then coupled with mockery. Soldiers bowing down to him after his back is exposed through the whippings, which in and of itself could sometimes bring a man to death. After his back's exposed, a rope's thrown on it, thorns are placed on him, and then the thorns are beaten into his head. The innocent one being punished. When he returns back to Pilate, Pilate presents him before the crowd. He comes out with the crown of thorns, no doubt blood everywhere, and a purple robe on him. And Pilate presents Jesus before the crowd, and he says, Behold the man! And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! He came to save. He came to rescue the ones who were lost. And the ones who should have known it, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, could not see it but were blind to their sin and start crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate, in fear that if he doesn't punish Jesus and issue out a verdict of guilt and death, As the Pharisees rightly remind him that he would be considered an enemy of Caesar, for Jesus claims to be king, and there's only one king but Caesar. And so Pilate issues out the order for Jesus Christ to be found guilty and killed. Jesus is then goes to Golgotha, which we call Calvary. And he's too weak to carry the cross, and he has to have Simon come and help carry it for him. And when he gets there, he's thrown upon this cross. And they would have taken one hand and nailed it in. They would have taken another hand and nailed it in. And then they would have taken his feet and pierced those with nails and nailed it in. 
The gospel writers don't tell us what all this looks like. How many times did they have to hammer? What was it like? What was the pain and the agony? The crucifixion they knew very well. Often that's why it was so written with shorthand. He was crucified. There was no need for all of the extra details because they saw the gruesomeness of it. But the crucifixion was not only used by Romans as a part of inflicting maximum pain, but it was also a time of complete mockery and humiliation. Fleming Rutledge wrote a book called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. This is what she says about crucifixion. Crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman Empire had as its its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. It cannot be said too strongly that was its function. It was meant to indicate to all who might be toying with the subversive ideas that crucified persons were not of the same species as either the executioners or the spectators, and they were, they were therefore not only expendable, but also deserving of ritualized extermination. Therefore, the mocking and jeering that accompanied crucifixion were not only allowed, they were part of the spectacle and were programmed into it. In a sense, crucifixion was a form of entertainment, Everyone understood that the specific role of the passerby was to exasperate the dehumanization and degradation of the person who had been thus designated to be a spectacle. Crucifixion was cleverly designed, we might say diabolically designed, to be an almost theatrical enactment of the sadistic and inhuman, inhumane impulses that lie within human beings. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, we see the accounts over and over again of passers-by wagging their head at him, scoffing him, saying, if you truly were who you claim to be, if you truly were, as the sign above your head says, King of the Jews, come down from that cross and save yourself. If you truly were the Son of God, you would save yourself. And they mock him and revile him. All the while, the crucifixion, the humiliation, and the pain while he's hanging there. The crucifixion, one of the wicked parts about it, is that for each breath requires great work. Because you have to lift yourself up as you hang there by your arms for each breath. One writer wrote that one of the, one of the most terrible and horrendous things about the crucifixion is that at some point the one hanging on the cross has to become their own executioner because they no longer have the strength and the power to lift themselves back up for their breath. It's almost as if someone was thrown out into the ocean and they can swim for however long. Some may last 10 minutes, some may last four hours, but eventually there's no, nothing to grab onto. They lose strength and they drown so too our Lord would have been fighting for each breath as he hangs there. As he's hanging there, he looks down, and we, can, we learn in our verses tonight that there were soldiers who were casting lots 
for his clothes. They were able to divide it up evenly, but there was one piece that they couldn't divide his tunic, and so they decide to cast lots to see who will receive it. Can you imagine in that moment watching people divvy up your clothes that you'll never walk out with again? Because this is your final moments. In Psalm 22, undoubtedly, points to Jesus Christ. In the other Gospels, it's recorded that he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a direct reference to Psalm 22. And this is what it says, and this is what Jesus was referencing and we should bring our minds to when he's upon this cross. In Psalm 22, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me, mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Hear this. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet, and I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing. They cast lots. I am being poured out like water. So hangs Jesus Christ, the Son of God, facing this immense suffering. But we also see submission. Not only is he facing the physical sufferings of the cross and all that that entails, but he's also simultaneously submitting to the will of the Father and taking on the full wrath of God. Like I referenced earlier, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked for the cup to be removed from him. There was only two types of cups in the Old Testament. The reference was either to a cup of blessing or to a cup of wrath. He's drinking the full cup of God's wrath and displeasure towards sin as he hangs upon the cross, submitting perfectly to the Father. And we know that this is a plan because look with me in uh, John 19, verse 24, when he quotes Psalm 22, John writes this, that this was to fulfill the scriptures. So even as these soldiers cast lot, even as these soldiers are in charge of having Jesus crucified, we see that this is all in accordance to a plan. That the Son of God would have to be crucified 
And Peter, in his first sermon after the Spirit comes in Pentecost, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Hear this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So not only is he facing the full physical pain as he hangs upon that cross, he's undoubtedly submitting perfectly to the will of the Father and facing all of his wrath. He was obedient even to the point of death. And this this leads us to our passage. We're focusing on the words from the cross that Jesus said. He said seven words from the cross. And this is the first recorded words that he says in the Gospel of John as he's hanging upon the cross. And in a first read of it, one may wonder, what was the purpose of it? Why did John have this as part of the Gospel? Because if this were taken out, what would we feel is missing in the story of the crucifixion? I mean, there's other sayings that we know and so familiar with. The, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Or, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Yet, we have this recorded And we can say with much confidence that John, when he writes his gospel, he says, I have written these things so that you may believe and know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And by believing in him, you may have life. So John makes it clear that all of his book has a purpose, which is to show Jesus as the Son of God. And not only that, we know that every word is inspired by God and is profitable and has purpose. So why this section? Why is this recorded? So we see that Jesus submits perfectly to the Father's will, but he's also submitting perfectly to the law. So see, we see after the soldiers are dividing those things in verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. So Mary, his mother, is there. Most likely Mary's sister-in-law is there. And then Mary Magdalene, who Jesus had cast out seven demons from, is also there. Women at the cross while the disciples had all scattered. And then we also see that John, the disciple whom he loved, was standing nearby. And John references himself, the writer of this gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved, not in a braggadocious way that he was the one Jesus loved supremely, but it was almost in that same language of John the Baptist that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. So he doesn't even want to refer to his name, but rather he would be, want to know, be known as the disciple Jesus loved. And standing at this cross would have been Mary, Jesus' mother, who John focuses in on, and the disciple John who wrote this gospel. Can you imagine Mary in that moment seeing her son? 30-something years before that, she would have been approached by an angel saying she's the favored one, the blessed one of God who will carry forth the Son of God. She's the one who will carry forth the hope 
of the nations, the one who will come from the line of David, who will be king and reign over all. She experiences the Magi coming to her and bowing down and worshiping her son. She got to raise a perfect son. How much do we love our kids and they are full of sin, but Jesus never once was a wayward son. She had the privilege of raising a perfect son. But she also was told in Luke chapter 2 that one day her soul would be pierced. Simeon prophesied. And there's no doubt in my mind that that prophecy reaches its fulfillment when she's there at the cross and she beholds Jesus Christ fighting for air, back lacerated, people mocking, his clothes being cast for, lots cast for it. She would have seen her son there. Knowing that he came to rescue the people from their sins. And Mary was a good mother. She was a favored one found by God to carry forth the Messiah. But she herself was full of sin. So undoubtedly, there had to be at some point a reflection. He hangs because of my sin. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother in verse 26, Woman, behold your son. He used that same language to her in John chapter 2 when he turned the water into wine. He's not saying woman to her in a derogatory sense. And he's, John Calvin argues that um, some people say that he said woman here because he didn't want to say her name because that would pierce through her heart already in a traumatic moment. I just think this is the way He's addressed her throughout the Gospels. But he says, woman, behold your son. And you know, she must immediately think she's, he's talking about him. But clearly in the next verse, then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. No longer would he be her son. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So why does John put this here? Not only is Jesus perfectly submitting to the will of the Father, but he's perfectly submitting to the law of God, which was broken up, Jesus said simply, into love God and love your neighbor. Or as we divide the commandments, the first four, our relationship to God, beginning with the first, you shall have no other gods before me. You are to worship God supremely, and Christ is doing that perfectly, obedient to the point of death on a cross. But then the second part, The second part begins with honor your mother and your father. And Jesus, before he's going to breathe his last breath, will perfectly fulfill the second part of the law, which he takes care of Mary and makes sure that she'll have someone to look after her after he breathes his last breath. Mary will be taken care of. Unlike the Pharisees in Mark 7, who Jesus calls out, they don't take care of their parents. When their parents get older and they have a financial responsibility to take care of them, they say everything is Corbin. Everything is gift to to the temple. We have no financial obligation to take care of our parents. And they bypass the heart of the law, which is to honor your mother and father. Take care of them, for they took care of you. And yet, the Pharisees cannot fulfill it. Yet Jesus, even in the most momentous moment in all of human history, is hanging on the cross. And not only is he perfectly fulfilling God's law by loving him supremely even unto death, he's honoring his mother, making sure she's taken care of. 
What a great Savior we have. Think about in your stressful moments how quickly we fall into sin. Whether our order's wrong at a restaurant, whether we're late to a meeting, whether things, we didn't get the bonus that we wanted. These small stressors in life and how quickly we're to complain and grumble and sin against God. And yet our Savior, while on the cross, crown of thorns, lacerated back, being mocked, fighting for air, facing the wrath of God, is so perfectly fulfilling the law. And we need him to, because we break it every single moment of the day. And yet there hangs our perfect Savior in all of his righteousness being displayed and he taking all of our filth and sin and shame upon that cross. In my place condemned he stood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We see Jesus' sufferings, we see Jesus' submission, and then we see Jesus' sympathy. While he hangs on this cross, we see that he is the true great and high priest, the one who can sympathize and cares for his mother. He is the one who claimed earlier in the Gospel of John that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, that he will not let one be plucked from his father's hand. He is the good shepherd, and he can sympathize with us. And so, as we think about him sympathizing on that cross, caring for Mary. I hope you're led to worship. I hope you're led to worship as you think about Jesus' perfection on our behalf. It says that in verse 27, and from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Can you imagine that walk? Mary and John walking back to wherever they had to go, what they were talking about? Were they even talking? Scripture doesn't tell us, and we don't want to go too far down the road of imagining, but undoubtedly when they left that scene, they would have had the images of Christ hanging. They would have seen the mockery, and Mary's soul undoubtedly was pierced as she sees her son hanging for her. And so... As we prepare to leave from here, how will we go home today? Will we be broken over our sins, that it was our sin that nailed him to that cross? Will we be led to worship that even at the cross, he was fulfilling all righteousness so that when we trust in him, we get all of his righteousness and he took all of our sin. We have no reason to doubt he was a perfect and great savior. Will we go home thinking these things? Let me read from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And from his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief, and with his soul makes an offering for guilt. The just suffered on behalf of the unjust. Let's take just a moment and reflect upon what Christ has done for us on the cross. As you reflect, I ask you just to think about the sacrifice he made, the submission and perfection he accomplished for us, and the sympathy he had toward his mother. And then I'll close with some prayer.